flash technologies like TLC and 3D NAND are promising much faster and higher density SSDs. So this week we bring in NetApp's cloud czar from the office of the CTO, Val Bercovici, to talk about futures on flash. And with a name like cloud czar, you know we gotta talk about cloud. Let's call this one Flash Forward with the Cloud Czar. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Pedro Arrow, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast, episode number seven. My name is Pete Fletcher, a.k.a. Pedro Arrow, and joining me as always is... The head man, the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho, Glenn Sizemore. <laughs> hey, Glenn. Holy crap, man. You want to talk about humbling. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, but I, I don't know where that came from. Yeah, yeah. We were chatting about Insight, and I was talking to Mr. Matt Watts, and uh, he decided he wanted to give a Glenn greeting. So they uh, they keep pouring in, Glenn. So uh, I love it, man. Keep them coming. This is hilarious. Yeah. I did get a couple of emails from some listeners that said their favorite so far was the uh, Spanish one. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Hi, Papi. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, sitting next to Andrew, well, virtually today because he's on Skype, sick with a little bit of a fever, is Sully the Monster. Andrew, how you doing, sir? I have felt better, but uh, I'm on the mend, so should be back in the office tomorrow if everything goes according to plan. Well, those of us that are not sick appreciate you staying home. So, <laughs> Joining us in the studio today is Mr. Dan Isaacs. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hola, Pedro. Hello, hola, Dano. And you are not the special guest, no no, uh, no offense, but uh, today we're excited because we're going to be talking to Mr. Val Bercovici, and I'm glad that you joined us, Dan, but today it's all about Val. Glenn, you know who Val Bercovici is, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm some, something about uh, a czarship over clouds. <laughs> I hear he's going to be CTO one day, but, but I may just be making that up. That's the rumor. I hope you're right. <laughs> Val, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the warm greeting. So, Val, uh, I'll go ahead and admit, um, I've been trying to get you on the show uh, ever since uh, we, we brought it back on air um, for a couple of reasons. There are two big topics that, that I was kind of hoping that we could dive into today. Uh, I had the opportunity to hear uh, your guest spot on the El Register podcast uh, probably about two or three months ago where you kind of dived into the state of, of uh, solid state media, you know, the, the actual reality of the current roadmap of NAND. And, and the alternate uh, storage class memory that, that was coming out. And I found that incredibly valuable uh, and, and wanted to, to just bring you in. And, and let's have that conversation today, especially with some of the new announcements around you know, stuff like XPoint. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, let's just get an update on what's going on with the cloud, because I know you've been crazy busy over there. Sounds like a perfect agenda. Awesome. So, Val, you, you are the, the visionary in uh, Futures for NetApp. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, what's happening in the world of Flash and uh, and what, you're, what you've been working on in terms of solid-state futures. Cool. Really fun and timely topic. As we all recall, it's, it seems like a long time ago, but it's only been about a month now since we got through the Flash Memory Summit, the 2015 edition here in Santa Clara. And it was the biggest and the best so far. It keeps growing year over year. Interesting to note that even though it's largely a supply chain event, the focus has dramatically shifted, I guess the pendulum, we could say, has dramatically swung from a lot of consumer-oriented flash modules and SSD-style devices towards very much the enterprise focus around you know, enterprise flash arrays and hybrid arrays and all that junk. So it's, it's been a, a really cool experience to see the show grow and evolve over the years. 
And I think NetApp, um, if you didn't cover it in some of the prior podcasts already, really kind of stole the show with about three out of the four major awards, as well as a very popular keynote I was able to deliver. So it was a really fun event and a couple of key findings from there that I'd love to dive into. Oh, yeah. We were actually recording while you were doing the keynote, and we were, we were happy to announce that uh, NetApp kind of stole the show with four different Flash uh, category awards. So that was pretty awesome. Definitely. And probably one of the cool things that I really like to highlight is not just the awards, but some of the collaboration we have with the leaders of the event. Samsung and NetApp jointly announced that we're working on something called a multi-write stream, which you know, the god of, of systems and flash in my mind, Jeff Kimmel, wrote a, <laughs> effectively a blog as a comment response on one of Robin Harris's blogs around the cool innovation we're doing with Samsung to solve a real-world flash problem today, and it's just another demonstration of NetApp innovation. And, and the real problem we're seeing today is still uh, a huge premium customers are paying due to over-provisioning required by either the SSD drive itself or the, 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 the controller from a vendor having over-provision to provide reliable enterprise class quality of service. And there's a, a best, I think, practice or a best in, of class number today of over-provisioning of flash, which is roughly around 28%. And re recognizing that a lot of I.O. in the enterprise today is, is the I.O. blender with tons of virtualized workloads and effectively a lot of random I.O. profiles in terms of reads and writes when it comes down to host controllers and motherboards and so forth. Right. This is a recognition that, you know, there's a lot of log-on, log-writes happening. And if we, you know, if we really drill down and, and effectively multiplex them all down to their, their raw essence, we can not only get much more predictable performance in that I.O. Blender environment, but more importantly, have enough confidence in the right profiles and the endurance characteristics, the right amplification characteristics, uh, some read-write disturbance issues we take into account, and effectively take that large 28% number down to as low as 7% over-provisioning for the same quality of service, the same lifetime endurance of the media, and so forth. So I think it's a major innovation that will result in truly customer-visible savings for every storage vendor, because we're starting it off as a joint T10 standard between Samsung and NetApp, okay. and quickly adapting it to T13 for SATA and ultimately to NVMe Fabric, well, NVMe and NVMe Fabrics over time as well. Yeah, the, the, I love this. And I, I love it because for me, this is an example of you know how, how this industry actually works, right? I mean, it, it's easy to go off there and, and run your mouth about some you know one-off implementation or some software that you wrote. But you know, the reality is, if you really want to change the world, you have to change it at the source. And and for us, you know, it appears that the way that, that we did that was by working with Samsung. And, and, you know, let's just change the way these drives work because, you know, we can change the way that the OS uses them if we do that. And, you know, here we go. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I love the fact that even though it's two industry leaders collaborating, we did it all under the standards umbrella. So it's now either a proposed or accepted T10 standard, and we're just going to keep going down, at least you know, for this particular kind of functionality in the block interface world and delivering innovation that everyone can use, whether they're partners, competitors, and especially customers. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have quite a few competitors somehow claiming credit for this, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we laid the, the flag time. down here today, so it's ours. The other cool thing about the show just to keep moving, is uh, a real inflection point in my mind. When you took a look at some of the announcements, back to Samsung and I think Toshiba and perhaps some others as well, around capacity flash. Oh, yeah. We're entering, I think, a world that's going to need a lot of education for the whole storage ecosystem, particularly on the partner and customer side, because there's natural confusion that's going to result. And that world is a world over the next year or two where the capacity of SSDs exceeds the raw capacity of HDDs. You know, typically uh, 16 terabytes rumored to be available in 2016 wow. versus about 8 terabytes 
and not much more over the next little while from the hard disk side. Wow, that's and then, kicking Moore's Law's ass. Exactly. And that's going to create confusion because that will really feed the myth that Flash is now cheaper than disk. And the reality is the raw cost of the media will still have anywhere from minimum 5x delta to probably 10x delta ongoing. But clearly when you apply a lot of the more easily implementable storage efficiency techniques on top of this high-capacity Flash, uh, we are absolutely seeing you know, the, uh, the rear-view, mirror-view of SAS and SCSI and fiber channel performance hard drives going by the wayside and nothing but you know low-cost, high-density, capacity-oriented hard disk drives and probably a whole new tiering system of flash over the short term with regards to performance flash and capacity flash now being a thing. Yeah, that's so so one of the things I've heard Glenn share a couple of times uh, both with customers uh, and on the podcast is that one of the changes that NetApp did recently around all flash faz was to use um, consumer grade flash disks uh, as as a way of sort of cutting the cost uh, because of the fact that we can slap on a 7-year warranty. Uh, so what do you think, how do you feel about the the, nece- the necessity for consumer grade versus, say, enterprise class flash when it comes to capacity in, in, in arrays? Right. I mean, this is a fiercely competitive business. So any COGS advantage we can gain by using lower quali- lower costs and, and uh, associated you know, linear reduction in quality components, the more advantage we have as a business. And I think it's only the really mature vendors that have years and years, if not in our case, decades of experience in log log-structured file systems and flash translation layers effectively that can take the lowest-cost media, including not only the consumer-grade MLC, but we're now very much on the cusp of uh, introducing enterprise-class TLC, triple-layer cell technology, as our primary go-to-market media, but we can stand behind it because we really understand, as evidenced by the collaboration with Samsung, as well as our 20-plus years, which, you know, dwarfs everyone in the industry around FTL architectures, we really understand how these drives perform in normal and edge cases and offer that really bold warranty to customers for, for reassurance. So Val, is there any concerns about, I guess, information density as these SSD drives increase? You know, a 16 terabyte SSD means that in a 2U chassis with 24 drives, we can fit, you know, 384 terabytes of information. You know, if you have a rack of those that suddenly powers off because somebody unplugged the wrong plug, you know, that could that could be an issue. Is there any concerns about that? Yeah, I think there's obviously concerns because as you know all too well, this you know, IO density in general is not a new issue and failure domains yeah. is not a new issue. Is it impacting our core designs as well as some of our newer product designs? Absolutely. The, the concern is there. It's not new. It's really how we apply this technology and still give enterprises what they need, which is, you know, if nothing else, absolute predictability into their technology, whether it's fast, you know, or slow, high high cost or low cost. Yeah, we're really excited about the high capacity drives. We're working working closely with the vendors uh, to figure out how we're going to price those things to get the, the cost down so that we can actually actually sell some of those. They have to be the right price after all. So that's that's awesome, Val. I, what can you tell us about uh, some of the future flash technologies? Something that's you know maybe not going to be here today, but you know if we have a podcast, we, when we have you back on the podcast, you know a year from now when you're the CTO, what <laughs> what kind of things are we going to be talking about that are just around the corner? If we say it enough, that it can come true, Val. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I just got this promotion. We're going to so speak this into today. existence. <laughs> We're going to call Will you it. Mr. President. Will it and make it so. So obviously the, the elephant in the room, which was addressed a little bit at the Flash Memory Summit, but uh, was timed very specifically to occur for maximum attention a couple weeks prior, 
was the mega announcement from Intel and Micron, their joint announcement around the 3D Crosspoint um, yeah. joint initiative. And that is, you know, we, uh, I hate the terms disruptive in a lot of industry conversations, and I'm probably starting to hate the term game changer. <laughs> but if, if you were to have to pick an occasion to use those overloaded terms, this would be it. Because Intel, you know, we're not talking about some crazy startup with wild ideas that are unproven. We're talking about right. some of the most, you know, um, respected titans in the industry that not only have the engineering chops to deliver this, but much more importantly, have the capitalization <laughs> to be able to build a multi, not just a multi-billion, multi-ten billion dollar fab. To, to make this a reality. And they not only announced this technology architecture will be available over the next little while, they actually announced that it was being manufactured at a particular fab in Utah, and they're expecting samples imminently, but certainly before the end of the year, and to ship early product in 2016. And this is something that I've been dancing around NDAs in my keynotes for almost three years now, kind of thrilled really to have the veil lifted and be able to talk about this more openly and, and just how deeply it's going to impact our world. Well, you've piqued my interest. Can we? What are some of the details around it that you've been sharing? So two things particularly. One is that, I guess, as with any introduction of a new technology into an existing market, you've got to have, have the, what I call the pedestrian mode, which is basically the backwards compatible view of it. And Intel actually gave it a name, I think, a week after the Flash Memory Summit at their developer forum at IDF 2015. Intel gave a brand name to this 3D Crosspoint category of technology, their brand name will be Optane, O-P-T-A-N-E. So that's another Google term. And they, uh, they uh, confirmed what they pre-announced even earlier on, which is that it's going to be available in two forms. Again, the pedestrian one in my mind is going to be nothing short of a, the, the most awesome SSD or flash drive on the planet because it's, oh, yeah. it has sizzling performance and latency with no Q-depths whatsoever. So it kind of shows the real deal. And that'll be available over uh, exclusively, I think, NVMe interfaces over a PCI bus, and some really cool NVMe fabric technology will originate there. But that doesn't excite me in the least. That's just you know an evolution, if you will, of SSD-style functionality. Uh, and they've already announced it won't be based on traditional NAND flash. They haven't spe specified exactly what it'll be, but I think if you were to pick between uh, some variant of phase change and some variant of resistive RAM, you wouldn't be far off. And they'll confirm that you know over time, I think in the next few months, as they start to ship product, exactly what it is and if it maybe even transitions from one to the other. But the real game changer is the next package that they'll introduce, which is basically via a new memory controller. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what, I don't, I don't believe too many leaks in this world are accidental. I think it was intentional, but I think it was back even in May. So quite a few months now this year, a leak came out around Intel's Perly platform, which is expected in 2017. And that chipset not only will introduce, you know, um, a way to feed the beast, if you will, of, you know, much bigger, faster Xeon-style chips with more cores uh, and perhaps, you know, even better overclocking capabilities, but it will include fundamentally a new type of memory controller into which 3D Crosspoint and Optane memory will sit. And the really pivotal thing about this is that we're now looking at accessing what can be viewed as a storage media, but I prefer to call it persistent memory. We're able to access this over a memory bus now as opposed to an asynchronous I.O. bus, asynchronous memory bus, and it's bit and byte addressable. No more clunky 4K blocks to optimize around. Yeah, you, you, you got straight to my explanation point, and this is where I was hoping we were going to drive because you know, for, for all we talk about speeds and feeds and media, and, and don't get me wrong, that stuff can be exciting. It's the OmniPass stuff that's got me kind of just like, holy crap, this could seriously change absolutely everything. If, if DRAM and, and persistent you know, storage class memory are on the same bus and there is no performance delta, 
then really you're just making a decision. Is this persistent or not? It, from an architecture perspective, everything gets easier. And the way you described it is perfect because it's actually going to effectively seem to be on the same bus logically in terms of any application development with simple user mode APIs, in terms of consumption of file systems and consumption of all these cool next generation NoSQL databases, as well as traditional oracles and SQL servers of the world. The reality under the covers at the system level is that it is two distinct buses. There will be two distinct buses. There'll be a traditional DDR4, DDR5 memory bus. And there will be this new kind of, you know, there isn't a name for it yet, but this alternate memory bus, not an I.O. bus, that will host the 3D crosspoint technology. And now, you know, the math starts to matter again as you continue to drill down to some pretty incredible levels of math. We were way beyond milliseconds of response time that was a domain of disks, and, and now beyond microseconds of response time, which is a domain of flash. We're fully into nanosecond level response times. And we're just one order of magnitude delta between DRAM, which is, you know, single tens of nanosecond response time versus 3D crosspoint, which hasn't been specified yet, but it's projected to be no higher than about 200 nanoseconds. So the hundreds of nanoseconds of response time and latency in a synchronous manner. And uh, it, again, it, 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 relatively speaking, nothing changes, but in absolute sense, these are fantastical science fiction like latencies we're talking about. What kind of capacities are they? Are we talking about here? We're actually talking about pretty decent capacities. Uh, even even from the get-go, we're looking at probably devices that are going to be on the order of 128 gig to maybe even up to half a terabyte in their very first generation before they really crank up the 3D layering. And uh, effectively, the promise is a sky's a limit. Realistically, the reason why companies like Intel and Micron are so excited about this technology is they have a manufacturing bent. They have a manufacturing bias. They're they're you know, they really are highly respected for their manufacturing prowess. They know that trying to continue to follow the NAND flash bandwagon, particularly on the 3D scalability front for capacity, yeah. uh, is just fraught with risk. After three or four years, only one of 12 companies has actually shipped something. That's our friends at Samsung. So clearly fraught with risk and complexity and cost. And then the fundamental reason that Intel and Micron are excited about 3D Crosspoint isn't just the performance benefits of the radical new application stack that can emerge. It's just easier to manufacture and scale. And that's why the win is at the end of the day, someone has to make these things and make money. And if you, if you really study the flash market closely from a supply chain perspective, there's been a glut in the marketplace for quite some time now. And the complexity of manufacturing 3D just makes that even more painful. It's way more complicated and expensive to make 3D. You kind of have to to survive in the flash world. And uh, we're looking at a lot of negative margin business for these suppliers for the foreseeable future which is why everyone's been eyeing what's next. So I, I, I guess I just kind of have to ask, right? Because Andrew and I got in one of our epic debates uh, about a month ago. <laughs> over <laughs> over where, where the proper placement of your badge? Yeah, no, no. The, on premises? The first is on premise? Oh, yeah. Man, it, <laughs> if you haven't seen these two in action, it's quite entertaining. The, I like Justin Parisi recently did a blog post, which really put, nailed this perfectly. He said they're either arguing about something about containers or whether water is wet. <laughs> <laughs> This particular argument was about whether or not anyone actually needs storage class memory. Like, I'll totally admit, you know, everyone always goes straight to high-frequency trading and, and the NoSQL edge cases. But, you know, when we talk about something like Crosspoint or PCM and, 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 and PCI or NVMe and, and all the standards and, and hardware crap that needs to be worked out, you know, that's a massive, massive investment. And, and quite frankly, there just aren't that many HVT apps out there. So... You know, what's the driver here? Why, why, are we just chasing speed for speed's sake, or, or is there actually something moving this? I mean, that's a great technology question. So I'd say first and foremost, 
if we abstract just a little bit away from NAND flash towards solid state storage only, and let's, let's ignore the memory discussion for a little bit, uh, there needs to be a sensible, you know, positive margin product or technology out there for these manufacturers to actually produce and deliver to the market. Uh, NAND flash, again, you know, even though uh, there's a lot of elaborate 3D roadmaps from various vendors around how they're going to achieve pretty impressive capacities, the ugly truth is the sausage factory is that it's incre incredibly risky and complicated and uh, expensive to manufacture. So one future here might just be manufacturing realities. The supply chain, in order to continue to survive, has to migrate to a storage class memory type of technology. And you know, basically, if you build it, they will come type of approach is one answer to, the, to that question. I've got actually something I believe in much more in terms of pure demand driving this kind of technology. And that's a couple of the use cases. So not violating any, any NDAs here. In, in the past, we'd have to wait for a Lenovo, a Dell, an HP, you know, a Cisco UCS division to actually figure out how to package this new 3D crosspoint and obtain technology, and then be able to price it and deliver it through their supply, through their uh, you know, go-to-market distribution channels out to customers. That cycle can take 18 months, you know, 24 months easily after the technology initially um, appears in the marketplace. Of yeah. course, what's, what's different this time is the cloud and leaders like Amazon, Google, Azure, and so forth. One of those three, you know, we can have a fun argument over which one it'll be, but one of those three will basically say, we offer developers or, you know, anyone using cloud, a large memory instance today. that's comprised of anywhere from 256 to maybe 512 at the very high end gigs of actual DRAM. And let's say, you know, if we normalize the pricing, this, you know, this large memory instance today costs 10 bucks an hour for, you know, 512 gigs of RAM, let's be generous. I think that's higher than most today, but let's just use a, a round number that'll start to make sense with my next comparison. Sure. So, so if you can get 512 gigs or half a terabyte for about 10 bucks an hour today, what if we offered you an extra high memory instance now? And by the way, this extra high memory instance is 10 terabytes of memory at 20% higher cost than the original high memory instance. Would you be interested in that, Mr. or Mrs. Developer? The answer is duh. Yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, it'll make my sloppy code run faster from just prototyping something or if I'm a typical enterprise developer that cares more about workflow and functionality than optimizing for efficiency or speed. Or obviously, if I actually have some large memory structures to drive some cool backends around even more uh, real-time natural language translation or even more Oculus Rift or Microsoft HoloLens virtual reality richness and, and density and depth of my worlds, there's going to be these amazing use cases that emerge. And the simple consumption models behind some very simple APIs that the public cloud guys will provide uh, is going to just you know, accelerate adoption of this technology at paces we're just not accustomed to or ever seen before. You know, Val, I'll admit I, I, I hadn't considered that. And that actually is, is that kind of makes sense, right? You know, if we're dealing with a storage class me memory media that's bit addressable, and now I have the option of, of backing whether it's a container or a VM or a physical host, you know, some sort of IaaS, PaaS, or SaaS offering, and using, you know, SCM as as you know an actual memory pool, well, now all of a sudden this race for speed starts to make sense because you do have to get within a certain performance envelope before that's even possible. So exactly, I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but but yeah, that's kind of cool. That's pretty exciting. And let me whet your appetite even more because it's not rocket science for someone like an Amazon, Azure, or Google to implement this. Uh, you know, virtual memory and page files, swap files of the past always had a, a distinct latency, even going to flash, or particularly when they were disk-based. That's Hitz's little joke, you know, you know virtual means it isn't when you talk about things like virtual memory. 
Yeah. Uh, but but using a particularly uh, whether it's an NVMe or Fabric or especially one of these new memory controllers, uh, even offering it up as a block device initially just for simplicity, doing swap files or page files to something that's 200 nanoseconds of latency will feel like memory to the app developer and the end user. And uh, even if you want to take it, you know, away from a generic OS level down to an app level with memory mapped I/O, you will be getting large, large, large memory look and feel and, and semantical behavior simply by memory mapping to storage class memory technologies like this. So we already have the basic constructs in place today that are proven for decades to implement, implement this right away. And there's a really cool blog that I'll refer people to at, at pmem.io, persistent memory. So pmem.io, which talks about how to take this to the next level. They've got this cool little uh, metaphor of, of crawling, walking, and running. And the running part is how you actually directly address this media via user mode APIs you know, it does sort of have a virtual or, or spiritual mapping to containers and C groups, but via user mode API access directly to this media so that the app can bypass, you know, constructs like swap files or memory mapped IO and, and do raw IO without the overhead of a context switch to get to the media. And that really matters when the media now is nanosecond level in a context switch can be several nanoseconds itself. Yeah. Yeah. Context switching is expensive, especially when you're doing it a lot. Absolutely. Never was in storage, and that's another reason why this isn't storage. <laughs> this is persistent memory. So I guess this is probably a pretty good place for us to pivot then. Um, I, I'm afraid if we keep talking to you about Flash, then we're going to get someone in trouble because there's you know too oh, much. Oh, you know the friend. questions that would come. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what's going on in the cloud? What, what's, what's got you excited on, on, on uh, that side of the world? And, and I know you spend just a ton of time either evangelizing or educating, both internally and externally, both the partners, customers, and everyone who's willing to listen. Uh, what, what, what's got you hopped up these days? Of all things, it's actually maturity of the cloud has got me hopped up because now we're going away from all these theoretical conversations around security concerns and wide area network performance concerns and obviously uh, concern around lock-in and data control. All interesting theoretical debates that we've kind of gone around the horn way too many times on over the past five, six years. 2014, if you haven't heard me say, was a really amazing year, a pivotal year, because that was what I call the year of the cloud bill where a lot of enterprises had finally started formally, you know, not even through shadow or, or yeah. other kinds of IT, but formally prototyping and piloting cloud projects. And they found out two things. A, you know, it is as magically wonderful as it seems with regards to consumption of really cool resources, whether it's the infrastructure or platform level. But B, oh my God, it is that easy. So look at the bill I've racked up. It's, it's <laughs> way, way, way more line items than I expected to try and interpret. And uh, I don't like the bottom line, right? It's not what I expected. Cloud is not cheap. Don't. Yeah. That's right. always been my favorite part about uh, our, our strategy from, from day one. You know, when, when George Curian first uh, unveiled it at, at Foresight two years ago, this, this whole idea of the application lifecycle and connecting all these desperate environments through a data fabric and providing enterprises with a clean mechanism to connect these environments and use each one for what it's appropriate, you know, for what it's best at. You know, go ahead and run it on-prem. Long-term, that's cheaper. But do all your dev in the cloud. It doesn't make sense to own that infrastructure. You don't, you're, not, you're not capitalizing on it. Uh, it. It's always been my favorite part about our, our, our whole integration story because it just makes sense. It's very forward-looking, and, you know, it's exactly what is happening in 2015 now is the realization that there's no such thing as a monolithic cloud environment. It's not black or white. Uh, you know, there's many, many shades of gray involved in, in, in the cloud here. And a couple of really crisp realizations, even though there's topics of debate right now in terms of the religious fanatics on Twitter, but 
Um, hybrid cloud now is clearly the cloud model of the future. And specifically, public and private clouds are merely subsets of an uh, ultimate you know, hybrid cloud permanence that will permeate throughout the industry for the next decade easily. Hey, so Val, before you even explain that, we haven't really had a even a two-minute conversation around sort of what the data fabric vision is for NetApp. And so maybe for the benefit of uh, some of our newer listeners, maybe you can just, since you're in the office of the CTO, maybe you can just sort of lay out what the NetApp data fabric is and, and what it looks like. So there's a couple of cool taglines to describe it. We'll see which resonates best. I think one of the taglines we've used in the past is own your data and rent your compute. And so the data fabric enables you to do that in multiple really valuable and creative ways. Uh, another tagline that we have to attribute to Pat Gelsinger at VMworld just the other week was, you know, the, the notion of innovating like a startup, but deploying like an enterprise. And you know, I think for certain audiences, that might resonate even better. Oh, yeah. But they're both singularly today enabled by the NetApp data fabric because we give you the technology to do that. We give you the, the data management technology to put in your favorite public cloud. And we give you, most importantly, as a result of having that control point there, the ability to have a lot of visibility across the entire data domain you might want. And that can include public clouds, hybrid clouds, private clouds. You can have singular views and decide what data and what workload belongs in one cloud you know, based on certain typically performance or consumption cost criteria, which workloads need to migrate to better suited clouds that might be, you know, from another supplier. And ultimately, as we said, which workloads over time really do make sense to just run on premises because after a number of years, you know, NetSuite, Workday, even Salesforce has legacy born in the cloud apps today, three, four years old. Those are in maintenance mode right yep. now. And you don't want, uh, you know, a high premium and valuable elastic environment for that because you don't need it. You need the opposite. You need something that's well-tuned and honed for a very well-understood and predictable workload. And that can be very much an on-premises infrastructure or just a simple hosting environment. So, so Val, is, is, is that where the vast majority of the uptake is these days? Have enterprises finally woken up to this, this idea? Uh, as you said, you know, Pat coined last week, you know, innovate like a startup but run it like an enterprise. Um, it, are they actually moving dev test to the cloud? Is that really happening? So a lot of this, what enthuses me, if I can get that out right, is a lot of startups I've spoken to, and you know, you might call this anecdotal, but we're talking about dozens upon dozens now of startups that I've spoken to, have this life cycle where they clearly see a ton of value. You know, historically, uh, AWS was the only option to see a ton of value in innovating, you know, fast fail style on Amazon with the really rich developer interfaces that are proprietary interfaces that Amazon offers. And then ultimately, you know, when it comes time to scale, the 10% or so of functionality that really resonates with their, their install base or user base, when it comes time to scale, they decompose all these cool proprietary Amazon services into their open source equivalents. And that's job security for developers forever because that's a non-trivial task. But once they've got these, you know, modular open source equivalents of the Amazon services running on generic infrastructure, that gets ported either to another service provider that's more optimized for specific workloads, or of course, back on premises to brand new data structures, these uh, data centers that these startups build. And the data fabric you know, fits perfectly into that model. You know, one, but not exclusively uh, one example would be Cloud ONTAP. And how starting with Cloud ONTAP gives you tremendous benefits during the dev test phase. You can obviously flex clone at speeds that just aren't available with any other Amazon storage service, reduce your costs with dedupe, share volumes across multiple compute instances with, you know, uh, basically file protocols as opposed to block protocols. And even do that, you know, I don't trust my availability zone thing. I'll actually replicate to another region with SnapMirror. 
So lots of value inherent just in using cloud on tap in place in the public cloud. But then the ability to have that control point of a snap mirror primary to a secondary that can be in another cloud I'm arbitraging Amazon against or to an, another class of OpenStack style service provider or maybe my own on-premises. Sure. That is amazing capability out of just a fraction of our data fabric because Storage Grid lets you do the same thing for objects. And AltaVault lets you do the same thing as a developer for streaming workloads or, of course, as an operator for backup and archive. Yeah, the the, the cloud-attached storage group use case is, is one that I am secretly, I've been super excited about ever since we had the S3-compatible uh, API. But uh, we haven't really made as much noise with it just yet. But it, it's it's one of those things, right? If you're an organization and you go all in on Amazon, Amazon's great. No, no one can say anything against that, except for there's one tiny problem. Uh, the way that their system works right now if you get access to somebody's cloud portal, you own everything, right? There's, there, there is no mechanism to step in there and, and be able to say, oh, well, you don't get access to this piece. You know, if you get the keys to the castle, it's literally the keys to the castle. Uh, something like Storage Grid or NetApp Private Storage, in my mind, you know, with my background, all, all of a sudden, even, even for those more critical services, I start looking at, at, at some of these hyperscaler players going, oh, well, maybe I can use this for everything. Um, it, it makes it more tenable for me. So I've always had a problem with with a single uh, single control panel for everything. That's it's just too much. I love the idea of being in the same actual data center with multiple cloud providers. So instead of it being a a migration from one to the next, it's literally just pointing your private storage from one host to the next or one cloud provider to the next without actually having to do a full-on migration. Yeah, this is uh, for all the virtualization heads out there. This is basically doing vMotion at cloud scale. It's it's awesome in terms of its power and its flexibility and its cost. So uh, let's let's uh, let's get into some of the the nitty gritty stuff. What what are the challenges? You know, where where are the pain points? You know, what are the types of things that that we still have to go out there and solve? So clearly, you know, even though we have a lot of the control points in place right now in the data fabric for having that single dashboard of visibility, uh, we're still working with uh, our partners on the on-command insight team, OCI team, to not only make that a very, very easy dashboard to build, but also make it affordable. So we've got to work on delivering consumption-based pricing for you know, the, the full suite of tools we bring to the table here, not just consumption-based pr pricing for storage capacity. So consumption-based pricing for the visibility across all the domains in a, in a hybrid cloud, you know, public, private, hybrid, and so forth. Um, licensing for uh, moving data, perhaps you know, consuming data movement in terms of just movement metrics as opposed to capacity on one end or the other. And of course, you know, there's an incredible value in performance. So in, in general, throughout our portfolio, and particularly in the cloud, having IOPS consumption-based licensing are, are other things we need to work on. So it's really rounding out the, the core message that we have in place, adding you know, effectively a, a foundation on top of the pillars we put in place for gluing together block and file storage across the hybrid cloud object storage across the hybrid cloud and, and streaming workloads across the hybrid cloud. I think it's awesome. fair to say you have the coolest job at NetApp. That's true. <laughs> I've, I've recognized that for many years now, which is why I love waking up in the morning. It's kind of crazy, man. Like you literally get paid, and I don't know how much, I'm sure it's a decent amount, but you literally get paid to play with like the coolest stuff in the market right now. And part of that is actually a little bit of instinct. I, I can't really say that seven years ago I had all sorts of data that proved cloud to be a really popular enterprise, you know, development and deployment model. But part of it is, you know, having about half my career be developer-oriented and the other half be infrastructure-oriented, kind of understanding the different psychology on both sides and how to explain one to the other, but also 
Um, if I haven't put a plug in for my favorite book, it's almost two years old now. It's really reading a, a fresh look on a situation from Stephen O'Grady of, of the Red Monk Consultancy and that developers are the new Kingmakers book. That really crystallized a lot of my thinking and uh, the timing was perfect because it was right before the year of the cloud bill. What was the title? Developers are the new Kingmakers. Very nice. So we'll have to put you, that on the show notes. Absolutely. If you Google that, you'll certainly find a way to... Um, to register for a free download copy of that book. And if you have any idea of how to do a simple Google hack for PDFs, you don't even have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that as an exercise to the listeners. Yeah, that's your homework class. <laughs> I was just seeing if they had this Kingmaker book. And, yep, there's an Audible version. I'm good. Cool. <laughs> I'll probably be with a British accent. I haven't, haven't done the Audible one yet. But it's a quick, you know, one-hour read, uh, 40 pages. Almost any busy person, ADD person, can get through that, including myself. Nice. Well, the assumption is that you're going to be at uh, that you're going to be at Insight. Is that is that a fair assumption? That is a very fair assumption for both Vegas and Berlin. And this is something I'll give you a bit of a preview, and we'll see whether it materializes. But I am meeting with a certain Dave Hits today to see if we can get this uh, application lifecycle developer pitch, which I call a lean cloud, on the main stage during day three of his talk. So. When you uh, show up to Vegas and you see what happens on day three, you'll know whether I succeeded or not. Lean cloud data fabric. I like that. Yeah. Well, well, e either way, Val, you, you know you always have a captive audience in us. So, Oh, we will be hunting you down. I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> but the, the podcast actually, uh, I don't know why they gave this to us. I feel kind of special. They actually gave us a, an area to, to record podcasts with folks. And so we will be chasing you down for, for a daily recap interview. So I'll be very much looking forward to that. I'll try, I'll try and stay sober for that part. That's not a requirement. Exactly. Much more entertaining the other way. So, Val, uh, closing out, uh, I know you are on the Twitters, correct? Very much so. What is your Twitter handle? Val Boo, which is Val B with two zeros instead of two O's at the end. Val Boo. All right. I like it. And Val is easily the, the best follow on, on Twitter if you want to wake up in the morning and find out what happened in F1 overnight. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, I have to walk this very delicate line of not doing any spoilers on Facebook. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people like me, actually, you know, DVR the thing. But on Twitter, anything goes because everyone's spewing information in real time. So there's no point in even trying. So yeah, I dish on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, very cool. I want to, I want to personally thank you for joining us today. Um, it's it's exciting to hear what's happening in the futures. We are all in the trenches, focusing on what's out there today for the most part. Uh, so it's really cool to get folks that are focusing on futures uh, to share that with us. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. Uh, it's a genuine pleasure. I love the podcast. I love talking with you guys and looking forward to having a regular cadence. Very cool. Very cool. Gentlemen, any other questions for Val before we let him go? I'll take that as a no. And I will. Oh, yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything funny. <laughs> <laughs> you? Are you kidding? I don't believe it. Canadian I... bacon. It's just ham, right? Exactly. <laughs> In England, it is. <laughs> All right, well, that music tells me it's time to go. And so if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at netapp.com. Follow us on Twitter at netapp. And subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes at Tech on Tap. And until next week, bye for now. So why is Sully sick? Did he, did he eat a bad kid? Uh, you know, <laughs> you guys laugh. It's going to be funny right up until the point where you two get it. Because I got it, and then Andrew got it. And it's not fun. Ugh. Just because you guys are just because you guys are nose to nose arguing all the time doesn't mean that <laughs> we're gonna get it. Val, uh, I was gonna ask you. I know you're a, you're a Canadian. I was gonna ask you to close us in song. Maybe you can sing us the uh, Canadian national anthem. <laughs> Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh yeah. Trust me, I think there's some very expensive microphones in your studio, and potentially amongst our listeners, uh, my voice would not be kind to this. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Let you off the hook. <laughs>